All right, guys, here we are. I think we represent a good, honest crosscut of levels of knowledge, familiarity, and exposure to the world of oak tannin. I'll represent the lower end of the talent scale, and then I'll let you guys uh, fight for the top seed. Basically, we're on season one, episode one, of yeah. something that I'm very ambitiously have titled uh, Eno Tools University. My goal is to draw an audience who can, on their time, on their schedule, whenever it's convenient for them, listen to some expert level information, which um, at the end of the day will make them more educated consumers. And if I might say humbly, make their job easier. And of course there, you know, there will be a feeling of, of this content being somewhat advertorial because coincidentally, all these people are from my network. As a lot of folks know, Eno Tools is a, uh, a multi-manufacturer service and sales agency. So I have a lot of affiliations. I've, I've cast a pretty broad net and tend to offer a solution for most steps of commercial scale alcoholic beverage manufacturing. But this is an area I'm really curious about uh, since we have a new brand, a new product line, and sort of a, a fresh look at how to, uh, how to offer tannin to the marketplace. I have invited some experts from the industry who are, know a lot more about this than I do to offer some tips or uh, some technological input. So brief introduction, we have with us Mr. James Wood talking to us from, where are you today, James? I am in the Vaucluse, so Southern Rome. Very nice. So and close to Jugendas, Baccaras, uh, So in that zone anyway. For the benefit of the audience, could you let us know a little bit about your background? My passion has been wine since a very young age, but uh, I've traveled the world. I've worked in the wine from uh, in South Africa, New Zealand, Australia. Uh, unfortunately, never California or the US as such, but I've made wine in the most regions of France over the years, and I've made wine in England, believe it or not. I made sparkling wine there and Germany. My passion for wine has really driven me to the Rhone. So Grenache is my real dream, and Grenache is a, is a varietal which is something that we still don't know exactly the full potential what we can do with it. And even though, historically speaking, there's a lot of, uh, everyone loves great Chateauneuf de Parap, big Gigondasses, and et cetera, et cetera. But there's more to be done. And I'm focusing my, my energy on, on Bontu, which is a lighter style, fresher style. To me, it's better fruit. Um, it's more elegant. And uh, I'm trying to build something here with that basis uh, for the future. So I've been here now for the last 10 years. I worked in a domain uh, called Domain Vintur for 10 years. And now I've, I'm consulting for the domain now and staying with the domain. But I'm now working towards doing my own, I just call it garagist uh, style of wine experimentation. Put it that way, but pushing it still to be commercial product, but really pushing what can be done with Grenache. Yeah, that's me. Simple. Very good. <laughs> so we also have hailing from the west coast of the United States, uh, Mr. Doug Manning. And Doug, uh, I know we've spoken a lot and you and I are fairly well acquainted, but pretend we've never met and tell me uh, about your background and don't leave anything out about your quote unquote early days on the west coast since I'm uh not only a Francophile, but um, I, I identify as a person who loves Burgundy. I think mm -hmm. I can appreciate good Bordeaux and, and good you know, Rhone varietals. But uh, of course, in the United States, California casts the longest shadow. So please let us know about your background. Uh, thank you, Joe. And uh, thank you for Eno Tools University. And I'll say right up front, I will leave a lot of things out. 
I'm a Californian, a second generation, uh, grew up in the Central Valley, had absolutely no interest in wine or beer or spirits or anything alcohol, went to school, studied music, went to college, studied psychology, economics, walked into the Napa Valley in 1972 with a college roommate and stayed at his house and started learning from these gentlemen and ladies of the uh, industry that were the, they wrote all the books. Let's just put it this way. They are the leaders of the industry. Uh, some passed, of course, but um, took me by surprise that I would come back and get a job. Uh, there's about 17 of us left that can still take a stick and make a bottle of wine out of it. There's a new crop coming up that will be doing the same thing. And I'm grateful to uh, be a part of their stuff. Uh, my first winemaking job was as a cellar master at Joseph Phelps Vineyards when it started. So wow. uh, we can oh, speak to Burgundy there, uh, but we can more speak to the Isley Vineyard and the uh, Insignia brands and so forth that I was a helper in making. Round Hill Cellars, uh, winemaker there, lived that young man's fantasy of being in business for myself and started Doug Manning Consulting, then into bottling. Uh, Benzigers, uh, the Glen Ellen brand, Domaine Chandon, a number of places where I would work three or four years and then move. I was very fortunate in working with people like Lisa Vanderwater, Zelma Long, Larry Langdon. I'm going to leave some of you folks out and for that I apologize, but uh, these are the these were my teachers. These were my mentors, Joe Phelps, Walter Shug, Chuck Ortman. I go on. Study the winemaking history from the Napa Valley, Sonoma Valley, and Central Coast from the 1970s to late 80s, and I know them, uh, and I have worked with them. So always in production, then I got into sales and learned that um, all salespeople are not ogres. Some of them are actually very helpful, and I wanted to be that, and here we are. Yes, but don't let the cat out of the bag yet, because folks, I've been sandbagging. Um, the, the reason why we're all here, I'm about to introduce this man. And I think, um, I think winemakers around the world might find something familiar about this gentleman's name. Stefan, uh, also known as Mr. Redu, could you uh, please tell us a little bit about your background? Thank you, Joe. Um, yeah, so my name is Stefan Radu. I'm from France. I have the chance to be uh, the fifth generation of Coopers. Um, my grandfather start, started the cooperage, my father developed it and we sold it a couple of years ago. And my, since, since I was born, my passion has been barrel oak and wine. Right now, I, a couple of years ago, I started my, my own companies dedicated to oak and oak alternatives. Uh, and now for many reasons, we also developed a line for tannins. I have the chance to, to know you all folks very well. And uh, we, are, we are developing business together with Doug in the US, uh, with great connection with James. Uh, and we have the chance to be uh, in several continents, China, South Africa, Europe, Eastern Europe, etc. So this is what we do. It's great to have all you guys here and have your undivided attention. So what tannins are available in the marketplace to all winemakers, uh, other than barrels this is? Anyone? 
I would say there's a, an absolute, in the politest possible way, a shit show of amounts of tannins available in the marketplace. Tannins are, are an enigma to most winemakers, and what is available in the market is, to be honest with you, it's confusing. You, you never know what you're going to get. It seems like we're living in a world where anybody with a dog and a pickup truck can sell tannin. Um, Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. How does the end user, how does the winemaker know, other than, you know, some shiny brochure, how does the winemaker know that the tannin they're buying is good tannin? To be honest with you, Joe, I can't answer that question because it's still very new for me, what is available in the marketplace. I've been around tannins, both in the new world and the old world, i.e. here in France, and we all think barrels are the key to everything and whatever. But the fundamental thing comes down to when you use tannin, it's you don't really know until the final your, what your date is. What, when do you want to bottle it? When do you want to sell it? When do you want to do you want to age it? Do you want to age it? It's used as a camouflage more than anything else. Tannins are not used to actually believe in creating something in its own identity. We we we, we use tannins as a me growing up and when I've worked in, in the new world, whatever, tannins have been there to be camouflaged, to actually be, um, create something that you can't produce in the vineyard, where in fact that's completely wrong. Tannins are there to actually enhance what you've already created. And to find that way forward is, uh, is very unclear in the open marketplace. And, um, okay, with, with, with Stefan and I, uh, we started talking a couple of years ago now but uh, it's a learning process to actually what is it possible to do with tannins and how they can extremely enhance what you've already got at less cost without using the big barrel world, world and running around forests and finding the right oak for you. Does that make sense? It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a confusion. Even now, I'm I will never stop learning, that's for sure, as a winemaker. And I will always keep pushing that, um, that point as far as to make the perfect wine for the perfect vintage. I mean, I can, I can go on and waffle on a lot longer, but it's, um, it's confusing out there. But I know for a fact that with uh, the EBX and what tannins they are producing, um, uh, there's a solution and a, something you can work with that is very um, unique to your own style. You'll find your own way. You'll find your way because you know what you're gonna get delivered. That makes sense? I hope so. Yes. The shopper that I am, I'm accused of getting analysis paralysis whenever I uh, plan to go buy something. But those who know me can tell you that if I get, if I have an interest in a certain type of technology or a gadget, whatever it might be, I go out of my way to learn everything about it. And, you know, I have about a hundred hobbies and I'm um, a little bit like Cliff Clavin when it comes to memorizing you know, the story about the thing that I'm into. And, and this is common, I think, with, with most male shoppers. I think that we have to rationalize everything we buy because we can't just buy something because we like it. It seems like we all have to rationalize and all that. So what constitutes quality and tannin? This has to be a question for Stefan. I would think a guy who makes this stuff for a living knows what the competition is doing. <laughs> um Thank you, Joe. If I may, I would like to to make complimentary comments on what James says. For me, tannins 
goes into falls into two type of categories. Do you want to correct to solve a problem or do you want to enhance? If you want to solve a problem, general experience shows what you can easily do with tanning and, and what works, what doesn't work. This part is pretty straightforward, very efficient, but very straightforward. The second part is how to enhance and then it's become a, a world of possibilities because each grape, each lot of wine has its own matrix. And the way you're gonna add your tannin to this matrix is gonna create something unique. And that's for me, the difficult part is that you, you have to master to know extremely well your terroir, your grape, etc. But at the same time, you have to have an understanding how the tannin is going to fit and influence the matrix. So it's this is the difficult part around tannins. Uh, but if if you are not going into I want to uh, uh, to come to make some camouflage, but I want really to enhance the the final product. And your question was, Joe. <laughs> well. I'm trying to figure out if uh, if I were, you know, in the cellar instead of um, piloting a, a desk or a pickup truck, which is, you know, my normal habitat is either in front of the laptop or on my way to a winery um, or, a, a, you know, a couple times a year, you'll see me at a trade show with all the smoke and mirrors out there. I'm used to it to a lesser extent than I am with barrels. I mean, I have heard some whoppers in the barrel industry. Um, some good talented salespeople and barrels and um and oak tanks and stuff like that they can describe barrels in a way you're not sure if you're um you know you're not sure if you're hungry or aroused by the time you get done hearing the description of of what these barrels can do i mean the, the winemaker has to try them you've got to put them in your cellar and you've got to see how they perform and give them a good, honest chance to integrate, you know, excuse me, to extract and to integrate. And it seems like barrels, they come at a cost. You know, there's a monetary cost, there's a cost of your time. And then it takes a lot of patience, uh, it seems. So we can't rely solely on them for other steps of winemaking. Anyway, I'm going down a rabbit hole. Sorry. Joe, can I just jump in there? Because it's actually quite a good rabbit hole you're going down, actually. Because that's very much the situation as far as the marketplace goes for styles of wine. We think we need oak, which is tannin. We think we need this, 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 this extraordinary import of excessive tannins to make a wine good. When you don't, you don't need that at all. You don't, want, you don't need to camouflage what you've already got there. And the real skill now, um, I think especially, okay, hypothetically speaking, I'm in the Vaucluse, which is a, in the Bontu, which is a very new area. We have, a, we have amazing fruit here. We don't need oak. We need to enhance it. And that's the best word that Stefan said before. We don't need to camouflage what we've already got. We need to enhance it. And the real skill with, with, with tannin management, and it's, I use oak as tannin, tannin as oak. It, it, it's ridiculous because oak is beautiful. 90% of the wines in the world, for me, are just oak. They're not tannins. They're oak. It's a flavour. Tannins can do more subtly without impacting on the fruit you've already got. And as a winemaker, I love my juice. 
I want my juice to be enhanced. I don't want it to be camouflaged. And that's key to what, how we do with tannins. And I'm really confident to say this, when I've traveled the world and I've made wine where I've made wine, we don't look at tannin as a enhancer. We look at it as a, another flavor. And that's wrong because we only look at it as barrels, not as what tanning can do to the wine, to enhance, to preserve the wine, to save the wine, to actually work with the juice you've already got. We have natural tannins in the actual um, juice itself. We have our picking decisions, which aren't just alcohol and acidity and whatever. We actually look at the ripeness of the natural tannins that are there. And when it comes to actually then developing the wine further, we need to look at what we can do to help those tannins, depending on the variety we're using. I love Grenache, which is kind of a Pinot-esque style, but sunny Pinot, let's call it that. Sunny Pinot. Some years we have no tannins. We don't have any, any flavonoid, any uh, ripeness in the skins, but we pick, and most people here pick too early because they so, get scared of the alcohol, they get scared of the acidity level dropping. They don't wait for a balance in the actual, uh, the fruit itself before they pick it. And then tannins become, a, become more of a, uh, a, an addition to help their wines become something different rather than what they created. So it's, uh, it kind of, they enhance it in a different way. I look at tannins now as to, I like to pick late, I prune late, I pick late. I like the, the varietal to be as expressive as it possibly can do. I don't want to use barrel. I don't want to use heavy Vosges, uh, Vosges or Tronce or the old oak barrels for Grenache in particular. I need it to be subtle. And that's where the experience comes into managing the, the tannins which are just there to preserve and enhance once more time without masking. It's a strange scenario to be in, but when you have time, you can play this, you can play it this way. And a lot of places look at things as recipes. Uh, a lot of wine is a recipe. And I, we don't know enough as winemakers to sit back and we're all loving the amphoras and the eggs and the micro-oxygenation or whatever, but tannin needs to be involved in the whole process to really develop the structure. And if you can't get it in the fruit, you can add it subtly, but you don't need to give it a, an overpowering Robert Parker-esque uh, <laughs> demand of heavy oak. Tannin is a beautiful thing to work with, but it takes time and practice and decides what style you want to make. James, you just reminded me of something, reality. I have a defined territory that I work within. That territory is basically from the western edge of Missouri to the Atlantic. And I grew up in the Finger Lakes. Oh, wow. Okay. Riesling um, country. Yes. And my, my hometown is Watkins Glen, which is uh, at one time was the home of the U.S. Grand Prix. And uh, I can, anybody who wants to give me a call or send me an email, I'll tell you stories about growing up there and being a child okay. during uh, the summer jam. Um, which was a concert bigger than Woodstock at the racetrack in 1973. Um, I was unable to attend because I was three. But anyway, if anybody <laughs> wants to hear that, if anybody wants to hear that story, I'll tell you what my 13-year-old first cousin got himself into um, at that. But um, anyway, yes, it, the area is known for Riesling, and that's, you know, that's fine. I think that uh, folks in that region, my good friends, people I grew up with, they're, they're happy to have the exposure. Uh, it's also a hidden gem for sparkling wines and the, the oh, region. 
yeah. the region can um, can pull off some some very delicate reds as well. Of course, with Cornell um, over the hill, there are plenty of hybrids in the region to play with. But those folks don't have the luxury, most vintages, of pruning late and picking late, uh, as you say. Um, yeah. re reality in a lot of my territory is that they have underripe fruit. So as I say that, I'm looking to Doug and Stefan and I'm asking what kind of solutions are out there on the marketplace or what in the tannin bag of tricks should somebody be thinking about? And then should they also be asking what's in that tannin? So there you go. I just threw an Easter egg in front of you two. <laughs> certainly did. What is in my tannin? That is uh, the next um, LinkedIn article that I'll get in trouble for. Yeah, fermentation tannin is probably the initial phase of uh, additions. Again, we're looking to be additive, not subtractive. You can sell any kind of tannin to address a pyrazine, a bell pepper, a green character, and you sell a liter and it works and everybody's fine. But how do you enhance an underripe grape? I'll speak to the um, EDX 810, which is the powdered tannin for early fermentation and uh, goes on through the life of the wine, uh, specifically with a uh, North Coast winemaker for a very large winery, a personal friend of mine. We've got this new LLC, US Amadei, and I say, hey, John, I need you to buy a bucket of this stuff and try it. Let me know what you think. He does. He buys again, and he's buying again because he is chasing get these grapes off the vine before they're ripe because of the impending smoke damage that's coming our way. That was the first year. The second year was the rains are coming. Get them off the vine. They're, they're almost ripe. They're better, but get them off the vine. So they're taught. They're just a little bit underripe. 20 grams per hectoliter. He's very much by the book. What is the recipe? This is what I'll follow. And this is what he does. And he loves it. And he's... Uh, kind of being a uh, bit of an evangelist for us to uh, get this product out there. EDX 810 is a powder of pure French oak tannin. What's in your tannin? When you look at the fermentation tannin, I'll venture to say there are probably four or five out there that are just oak. The rest are seed, nebracho, chestnut, gall, a number yeah. of other tannins. There's tannin in the grape seed, there's tannin in the grape skins, there's tannin in the stems. Those are the ones that appear with the plant, with the fruit. But there's also added tannins that are much less expensive to make and have some qualities of antioxidant, color extraction, color stability, and to my taste, oftentimes will add a bitterness. When you add a tannin that is a blend at fermentation, you really don't taste the bitterness until you have fermented dry. And you don't know if that bitterness came from the stems, the seeds, the skins, or what you added. So you compare it side by side with the tannin that it gives you the same positive properties that you want of color and color stability and smoothness and you know, just a, a good extractive activity with your seed tannin and your gall tannin, your blend, yeah, you're going to pay a little bit more because you're pine French oak. But you're getting the smoothness and a character that uh, you don't get. And you're also not having to 
treat or remove or blend out that bitterness that you in fact may have added uh, to your grapes. So you want to you want to be additive with winemaking. You don't want to be subtractive with winemaking. You have enough of those problems, you know. Correct. Also, uh, if if I may jump in, also um, in in EBX, we believe that less is better. Mm -hmm. um, so we rework our process to have to bring less of everything that a tree can give, but more of what the winemaking needs. This is that we go for extensive air maturation of our oak, of course, because we also do Merin to, to make barrels. Uh, we source the oak into special location, but we mature the oak. So it, it washes what's inside the, the oak. We also, by this, raise some enzyme that start to eat the oak. And like that, we have a potential of something nice and not harsh. And after our process, if we toast it, we have several processes, but if after for the extraction process, we, uh, we really wanted to, to change the paradigm of, of the tannin. Normally when you make a tannin, you try to soak everything out of the oak. If you do that, as a producer, you are very happy because you have more weight for your extraction. So you sell more, but what are you putting in? You are putting things in your powders that would never go normally into the wine. Does your oak barrel as a tar in it? Yes, it does. Does this tar migrate to the wine? No, it doesn't. It would never because the wine has a potential of alcohol, there's a room temperature. And so you only transfer to, to the wine a tiny part of what is inside the oak. So our process is dedicated to have the same windows extraction as a barrel. So in fact, we don't put a lot in, but we believe it is for the best. That's fun to think about, actually. It's kind of, uh, it crosses over to, to something else that, that I've learned over the years on another type of product, which should be its own podcast. But the thing I've had to remind people of before, relative to the concept that your, your wine is not capable of creating a scenario in the bottle, for example, uh, where it could expose something that may or may not be a byproduct of a manufacturing process. That makes total sense. I mean, the wine cellars are typically temperature controlled and the wine is only, you know, it has only so much acid and only so much alcohol and it's only a certain percentage of water. So the things that wine could extract from a barrel, I mean, that makes that makes a lot of sense. So before you move on to the next question, can I just, just clarify one thing as a practical user of tannin? Yes. The key thing, what Stefan has said and what you're trying to summarize on is the quality aspect of the tannin that is available now, but also how it impacts the actual commerciality of actually making a wine. So what I mean by that is there's, there's some lovely tannins out there that can have an instant effect because they're pure, they don't need time. They can correct stuff, they can actually enhance uh, wine, 
almost instantaneous within two weeks, let's say. I mean, two weeks is a, is a, is a uh, I think is a general experience of mine where when you are using tannins of this quality, they have a, uh, an impact of an all round, we call it movability, uh, drinkability uh, of a wine. And um, it's, a, it's, it's not a recipe, it's, it's, and it's not a correction, it's just an enhancement again. But you can do it quickly without having to wait, use time, whether you want to use staves, do you want to use chips, whether you want to use barrels. There's a purity to this of extreme, of these, these extractions now and the modern day extraction system that's coming from um, EBX in particular and Emily, is that you're getting a tannin that is pure. And I say that word very, very, very difficultly because purity is everything to a winemaker. I'm not trying to sell the product at all. It's just my experience using it and I've been trying it in the last three or four months with various different wines and seeing how the instant impact it has. I love the whole philosophy of being a winemaker and age and time, and blah, 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 to make a decent wine. And yes, it does exist. It does happen. But really, 99% of most wines in this world just need a touch, a love, a little bit of love. And you can do it quite quickly. You don't need time. It may sound beautiful using time as your creator, et cetera, et cetera. But liquid tannins and their purest form, and you know the source, it's, 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 it's revolutionary uh, as far as a winemaker goes. I don't need to uh, go much more on, apart from the fact that my experience with it is it's extraordinary. As Stefan says, tannins are simple and easy, but they're also extraordinarily complex. What you really need is, a, is the belief in what a tannin is. What will it do to enhance your wine? End of story. And you can do it quite quickly. So I have a question, which doesn't, uh, it doesn't collide with uh, what you're saying, James. It's, um, it's actually somewhat inspired by that. Um, so for the, for the neophyte, for a, for a winemaker who is maybe, you know, uh, the guy we've, we've probably all met who has gone beyond the hobby grown wildly out of control. Now he's, uh, or she, now they, they are a commercial winemaker and not doing a whole lot of production to clarify some of the, the gray area about the world of tannin, when, for example, would you go for chips instead of powder? Where would you say chips come in handy in the process? For me, physically, and uh, I'm, I'm in the process of changing, to be honest with you, from liquid to, and from solid material to liquid material. When it comes to the harvest and what you have, what you, what you think you're receiving at the reception, the maturity, the quality of the fruit, that's when you make a decision on whether you need to do a co-ferment with chips uh, or you want to add some liquid tannins into it at that purpose to, to enhance what's already there. I personally, at this moment in time, um, I do like chips. I, I, I do like them, but I don't have the same amount of control over a chip that I do over liquid tannins. And liquid tannins are a little bit more measurable. Um, you can add a little, if you say you want to want one gram per hectolitre, you, you can add half a, half a gram per hectolitre and see what happens. And it's very instant. Chips, you just don't necessarily know exactly whether it's going to be great for two weeks, three weeks, four weeks, six months in the same ferment. 
But when you take it out, it's still going to mature, still going to go on further. With liquid tannins, it's almost, it's almost instant. I hate using the word instant because it's not. It's, you have to be in the whole environment. But what I mean by that is that it's a little bit more quantifiable. Chips and staves aren't. You don't really know how it's going to develop post taking them out. If you say you had to put a stave into your barrel, into your tank for oh, so it's three, three months on the on the instructions, it's still gonna it's still gonna grow three months later. Um, you're not it, it's 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 not quantifiable for, as far as I'm concerned, and with my experience. For the home home winemaker, for the small wine producer. I think halving a dose of liquid tannins is a lot more controllable than to see what it's like in two weeks' time, because you will get a result within two weeks' time. Am I all right, Stefan, with that? My experience personally is within two weeks, you can see what you're going to have, and it's stable. Um, and if you want more, you can add more. But it's, I, I always go half, half, half and work with the fruit, because the fruit will react. It's a natural product we're talking about here. We're talking about something that we don't really know the ins and outs or the science behind it. We're not going to analyze a chemist every day to see how the long-chain fatty acids and the, and the short-chain fatty acids are, are, are working together or binding together. But I know for a fact that working with liquid is a lot easier than working with chips or staves. I, I would have this. Um... It, it, for me, it's also a matter of, of lag. When you put some chips over your wine, you have first lag of, of, for the chips, for the tannin of the chips to be extracted and to be in contact with the wine and so to work. So you have this first lag. And after, at the end, when you remove the chips, you still have another lag, which is normally around two weeks, where like, James says it continued to grow and continue to to act as if it was still there. Mm. Where's the tannin? You don't have that. Instant, very very fast. Not instantly, but very very fast. The active part of the tannin is is connecting to the molecule, uh, and you know, and you you have this lag after but it's only two weeks so it's yeah. it's much more controllable measurable yeah for sure i agree now i would like to uh, add something around the process because we put very little thing into our tanning we don't have what we can call side effects mm. normally when you do something it has an effect but with oh let's say the old way of extraction, you have, you carry other effects. No one would clearly identify where does those effects come from? Does they come from the tannin? Does they come from the grape? Does they come from, you know, things, other things. But what we see is that with our specific process, in fact, you are addressing a topic, and you are not creating other topic to uh, for the winemaker to work on. So, yeah, sorry for some. It you you would sell less analytical product because you won't have those side effects to work yeah. on. Yeah, <laughs> very very true. Very very true. Mm -hmm. With my limited experience, 
surely you guys, all, the rest of you on this call can understand why this was a, a moment which stood out in my mind. There was a time um, I was traveling during harvest and visiting customers and um, uh, usually you find me on the crush pad in that scenario. But in this case, harvest was winding down. I had the opportunity to try a red. Same grapes, same corner of the vineyard, same yeast, same nutrients, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the only difference was, and these were small batches, one batch was fermenting in stainless and the other was fermenting in neutral oak. There what do you was mean by a, neutral oak? Sorry, sorry. What do you mean by neutral oak? Just an old, you know, old so barrel. many. Yeah, just a, where the winemaker had pulled the head off of barrels. And yeah. so you had a small stainless vessel open mm -hmm. versus barrels um, on end with the heads removed. The palate weight, the mouthfeel, the structure, even though it was a young fermentation, you could still sift through all of the, you know, the jazz band going on in your mouth and you could sort of figure out, you know, you could discern a difference. So if we were, we're still kind of stuck early in the, in the life cycle of the wine right now, because we're talking about processing, you know, uh, going into mm -hmm. production. So we, we've already discussed, uh, you know, powder effectively on the crush pad and then some kind of tannin in, in fermentation. Do we expect any kind of an impact uh, lasting through fermentation from, uh, from using dust on underripe fruit? Is it something that's noticeable at that step? Is it something in addition to using chips or liquid in the fermenter? Um, do they influence each other? Do they work together? How does this, how does this happen? Uh, Doug, I think that's, that's for you, I think. Okay, I think so. <laughs> I, I like throwing everything into the tank. You know, fermenting on chips, um, unless you go in with a toasted chip, you're going for an absorption. Uh, the chips are providing a playground for the yeast, for the bacteria, um, much like uh, a yeast product would be, a yeast hull or a yeast extract. You have those things usually in your fermentation nutrient. The chips are kind of similar to that and they're providing a texture. They're also releasing a very soft tannin. But honestly, I think the chips have become a staple. It's kind of like having to put butter on your toast. <laughs> Depending on the kind of bread you're eating, you may or may not require butter. Um, what about a lot of butter? Or a lot of butter, yeah, or you know, sour cream, or any kind of you know, you know, chocolate. And what salted, salted by the salted, way, salted, lots salted, of salted butter. Has to be salted. Okay, good. Now, and were there any other questions? Yeah. No, carry on. <laughs> I'm hungry. In the interest of uh, of keeping this informative, so let's say we're. Oh my gosh, do we dare talk about rosé? Yeah. Um, oh, yes, please. Yes. Um, yes. Now, I was an early, I was a, an early adopter, a big fan of the Charles and Charles bumper sticker that says, um, "Yes, you can drink rosé and still be a badass." And I, I like to tell myself that um, I'm that guy. I mean, I've stood at a bar at a trade show, room full of winemakers of all all types, and in walks you know the six foot six, two hundred and forty pound vendor up to the bar. And um, I ordered a glass of rosé and the bartenders looked at me like I was from another planet. And I was just like, 
you know, I just said to them, this is a, this is a wine convention. I said, I understand why I'm getting that look right now, <laughs> but um, I said, trust me, everybody else in the room respects the fact that I'm not shy about drinking rosé in public. Guys, this whole thing about, uh, you know, the Provence style or not, you know, versus Sangye method on rosé. Uh, it's regional, it's varietally specific, it's winemaker preference, it's stylistic. Where does tannin come in on those two different styles of making rosé? I have a customer who is using in lab fermentations of uh, red grapes. I'll just leave up that. A number of different red grapes. Ruby red being one of them and uh, um, Grenache being another where he's doing lab fermentations to try and make that rosé, that Provençal style rosé, but he wants to have the gritty, sandy texture to it on the tongue. He wants to have the, the dry mouth feel. I said, throw a scoop of EBX 810 in your fermenter. Now these are, now these are glass jug fermenters, okay? They're five gallons at a time, but he's still going up to a 15 gallon and potentially minimum order quantity of a truckload a week. That's what we're looking for. But, you know, he's trying to figure out the formula for this stuff. And the, the, the scoopful is a very, very small amount. Uh, the normal dose for reds would be 20 grams per hectoliter. He's up to five. And he says, I think I found it. I think I found it. It gives it a smoothness. It gives it a texture. It's getting there. So I'm starting to think Sauvignon Blanc maybe a smaller dose, uh, certainly Chardonnay, where we do not impact the color. And you're not going to worry about color impact so much during fermentation, but because a lot of that color is going to drop. Uh, I see a finger up with Stefan. Yeah, and I'm, you can't see my hand up either. Um, color is a different thing altogether, okay? The whole concept of tannin and rosé. I think Stefan is probably more suited to, to, to describe what happens with the uh, liquid tannins in particular, or chips or whatever for, for the color stability, but tannin is extraordinarily important for Grenache. And mm -hmm. if you want to make a Provencal rosé, you need tannin. And depending where you are in Provence or in the Rhone, the Southern Rhone, uh, I can safely say to you that my rosé that I've made over the last few years has never been the same. I love the wine to be a wine. Mm -hmm. The market does not demand it. The market demands something completely different. Unfortunately, which is still to my, uh, it still scares me. Um, but my 2020 rosé, 21 rosé, sorry, is basically sold out already. But it needed tannin. And this colour is stable and it's very pale. I, I made the wine. I didn't actually let the rosé do itself, but I needed tannin. You need tannin in a rosé to hold back Grenache. Grenache phenolics drop very, very quickly. And unlike Provence, where we're using mostly uh, Sanso, Mouvedre, and Grenache as, as well, but not as much as far as a classic Provence goes, the Grenache uh, phenols or phenolics are very fragile, and we can't hold them without using tannin. Yeah. So the fading of the color or, or after six months is yeah. a real issue. It's huge. And, and so if you use, uh, like Doug say, around five grams, uh, you you are getting rid you are getting rid of of this burden of seeing your color 
becoming yellowish uh, and fading away and having this brownish type of rosé that do doesn't appeal. You want, if, if you, if you are aiming for the pinky, flashy rosé color that, by the way, won't impact on the palette, uh, you you need this tiny amount of tannin just to to secure it. Yeah, mm -hmm. at, at fermentation. Yep. You do it at fermentation, and you solve because it's, it's a quick turnaround product. But it needs mm -hmm. to be added at fermentation to fix the color. Exactly. When you get the color safe then you can sleep well it is about color it's a fickle market is the is the rosé market the color does not persuade me to to buy a rosé but i mean i do i do like the color and i've seen some which were hallucinogenically pink one was um i had to ask a lot of questions about why the color was so intense and it was um it was from a state which people don't normally equate with fantastic rosés but that specific bottle I recall one uh, best of class at a competition in the East. It's arguably, it should have been best of show because I think that, uh, well, what the heck, you know, um, I get to be in charge for a second. So I'm going to go ahead and say this. I don't think anybody's surprised when they find out that a winery east of the Rockies made good dessert wine. I thought that uh, this particular competition was doing a disservice by not saying specifically that the rosé was the best of show instead of best of class, because mm -hmm. I read the results and I was very disappointed when I saw that, oh, an ice wine won best of show. Who cares? Um, mm -hmm. You know, I love dessert wine. I've got a great collection right next to my collection of port, which I can afford to collect uh, because I can't afford to collect Bordeaux's, but I'm, I'm kind of opinionated about my rosé and I, I've never bought one for color, but I'll tell you this, the nose, the one thing that I picked up, I remember hearing a long time ago before I had this much of an interest in tannin was that tannin on the crush pad, specifically in a fragile wine like a rosé, is very important to preserve the potential for aromatics down the road for the customer. Is this, how true is that? 100%. You're capturing it and you're blocking it in. The fruit is everything in a rosé. And the fruit will not survive without a strong phenol structure. To fix the phenols, you need tannin. And especially when you're trying to keep the alcohol low, and especially when keeping it, and you're picking early with the acidity aspects to keep the freshness in there for a white wine. And this is modern winemaking. This is not, I'm not talking Tavel or whatever, but to keep it pure and, to, and true to the point, you need to capture the aroma of the nose, which is only in the skin. And if you go little in the tannin addition, the great thing about it is that it goes under the radar taste yeah. from, from, from a taste sample. You would never know who you have had a tannin. No. But the effect is there. Yeah. Because you, you are adding so little, but it works. Yeah. And, and, and from White Point, Joe, um, color from what I read is from the purchasing act of the bottle is in France per se, uh, number one, they, it's women that buy rosé uh, and basically all the wine now. <laughs> and, <laughs> they choose, and they choose, they choose the rosé first because they like the pale 
cutter. And some in some areas they are thinking about lowering the, you were talking about the Tavel, but also the Cléry uh, in, in Bordeaux, um, going a bit lower into the color intensity to appeal to, to the customer. Yeah, mm -hmm. very much so. Because I've gone to the pale side, I've gone to the, all the dark sides, we might say. Um, but I, the only way I've done that and being happy with it is by using tannin. I might add a little something here if I could. Um, we're using, we're answering your question, Joe, about rosé, and we're using the word tannin as a very, very broad brush in the conversation as I listen. Uh, yeah, 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 it's true. We might want to find that brush a little bit and, and narrow it down because you asked the question earlier, what is in your tannin? And we discussed that as well. So I'd like to hear a little bit, perhaps Stefan, you can address the tannins that are, that we would use in EBX 810, a pure oak powdered sourced tannin for this application and compared to a gall or a chestnut or a seed in that capturing of the color, in that locking up the phenolics. Because the winemaker is going to hear this and they're going to go, oh, use tannin, use a low dose of tannin on my reds, on my rosés. What do I do? No, this is, this is a great question. Um, oak has characteristic that all the tannin don't have or have, but each category, each varietal has its own characteristic. Uh, using oak bring smoothness, bring complexity. Uh, it might not be the, the most um, antioxidant of the tannin of all. It has this aspect, but uh, it's more about balancing. It, 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 it creates and respects the balance of the wine. Now, uh, we, we have developed um, a special tannin uh, dedicated to uh, protecting the wine. Because uh, in the northern industry, we, we have worked on, uh, on for, for the butchery industry and other industry in order to protect uh, red meat uh, from oxidation. It's, uh, we have discovered that having tannin is not having characteristics or making average. You just create something else. Uh, so this is why we create this tannin called VBX to protect as a fermentation tannin, a harvesting tannin. Uh, when you bring together, let's say, you have a tannin A that's going to protect in, um, let's say, two weeks. You have a tannin B that's going to protect in two months. If you have those two together, uh, it can protect in six months or in a couple of hours. It's, it's symbiotic. So what we have designed is to find uh, the, the best aggregation of tannin with the right ratio ded dedicated to speed. Now here, we are not talking like the A10, the French oak tannin about roundness, smoothness, and, and this balance. 
we are here dedicating to speed of protection, fixing the color, those type of things. But also with an extremely neutral uh, taste, a very yeah. under the radar taste. Yeah. So yeah. you, you know, working with Stanley is a is is a full journey. Is you have a lot of opportunities, but we did we we have decided to work only two type of roads, or you work onto the protection aspect, and you don't want to work on the mouse feel on the taste. This is VBX, or you want to have something that the oak can bring, uh, this roundness, this smoothness, and now you have this other one. So. We wanted to make this distinction between the two, and um, yeah, it's it's the way I think we, we sh you should look at your need. This begs a question because I'm I'm learning. Trust me, learning a lot on this uh, during this discussion about the downstream. I mean, let's say whether it's a situation where the winemaker has maybe they're totally satisfied. I, maybe they think that they have they've done the best they can to live up to the expectations of the vineyard. They have uh, very successfully expressed terroir up to this point. Sorry, Stefan, for my American pronunciation of that word. Um, uh, so, I mean, let's say we're 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 mostly okay with where the wine is at. You know, fermentation is finished. We're you know we're pressing off the reds or we're we're sampling whites or whatever. Uh, let's let's assume that we have used liquid tannin during fermentation because of its uh, immediate effects to uh, to rush in, stabilize color, uh, secure uh, you know take out a buy a certificate of deposit on a great nose in the glass years from now, all that kind of thing. What are the downstream effects in the cellar once you've used tannin? Once you've added tannin, regardless of the source, how does it affect the wine in terms of stability or uh, uh, fining or filtration? Like, or is there anything that changes from using tannin uh, early on? Fundamentally, no. Can't be more clear than that. Liquid tannin is is doesn't affect the general aspect. Only enhance what you do in the cellar. The natural, the more natural it is, the better it is for a winemaker, as far as I'm concerned. I'm as natural as possible. I'm an organic farmer. I'm an organic winemaker. Uh, I use organic tannins. They're natural tannins. But all they're doing, you're enhancing the fruit that you've already got tannin there anyway. You're just giving a little bit more or a little bit less. It's never the same. But it does help naturally protect the juice. Liquid-wise... You don't know. You can filter if you want to filter. No problem. You cannot filter. No problem at all. It makes the wine. Uh, or it doesn't make the wine. This is hard. I hate using that word. Make the wine. It helps you create something that is true to its own identity. You can be excessive. I mean, come on. We've all drunk the worst of some great wines of the world, which are just all about oak. That's tannin. We're talking here tannin as a. Um, as a natural preservative more than anything else, uh, an enhancer to your wine. Oak, using oak, toasting oak, burning oak, whatever you want to call it, different extremes to get different amounts of extraction for it. It's a style. You're making your, you're making your fruit into something that you perceive it, it can handle, it can hold. Mm 
It's not doing much more than it obviously does help the wine, does preserve the wine, but you're masking the wine. With liquid tannins, you can manage the fruit in its pure form. You can still put that wine into oak barrels to get the extraction or that flavonoid from the oak itself. But you can do it a lot more securely. Um, in the new world, it's called new world, I hate using the word new world, but in my, in my, <laughs> in my past, in my history, whatever, I, I, I was shocked when I first started using liquid tanning many years ago at source. And I didn't understand it. And it was brutal tanning. I mean, I'm talking, it was like, well, no, it was it's unbelievable. It, I never had anything quite as unattractive in my life as this syrup. And it goes into the into the crush at the beginning. Dosage, uh, 25 grams per 100, 110 hectares, it was something bizarre. It was enormous. And this same juice goes into barrel afterwards. And I think, what? Why are you doing that? But you don't taste the tannin. The fruit needs the tannin and ferment for the protection, but then the, the style comes out later. But they weren't using sulfur. They weren't using um, any other immunological products. It was like, this is a seriously premium product, one of the premium products of the world. So wait, did you just say you weren't using sulfur? Does that does using tannin mean that you could be comfortable with a lower amount of free SO2? I personally think yes and my experience is yes would i put that would i put that would i put that on my uh, resume maybe not but gut feel the riper the fruit the riper the tannins the, the better tannins you get yes under ripe fruit add tannin you feel a little bit more secure and i'm not going to go much further than that because the scientist below me wants is a lot better more qualified for it but tannin is extremely fantastic for the the, the antioxidant side of it it's beautiful, as is it. Yeah, Stefan, over to you. I'll let you finish this one off. <laughs> no, no, you're, 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 I, we, we have worked a lot on helping people reduce um, the amount of sulfite use or to go low or no sulfite. It is possible. It's, I won't say tanning is the answer. I would say no. tanning is part of the answer. It's a process. It's a, it's a global understanding of every step needed from uh, things to be clean to, yeah, you, know, you have so many things, but uh, tanning, the way we, we decided to, to to blend them so we have extremely fast speed on protection uh, is, is a good companion of this process. Uh, we worked with a company that is making um, yeast, which has a special yeast that uh, help making unsulfated wine. We put our our antioxidant, we are antioxidant uh, right after this yeast. And yeah, it's, it's a journey, it's a combined journey, but at the end, you are able to achieve your goal. Uh, there's nothing magical, it's just process. Yeah, yeah, it's exactly that, it's a process. Yeah. And it's a gut feel, I mean, every, every winemaker is, is involved in every single ferment they do. 
it's not going to give you a sleepless night. I mean, it's going to give you comfort, but you just need to understand that nature is phenomenal in every different way you look at it. But with tannin, when you look at surly uh, uh, on leaves, we're working with yeasts in the in barrels in tanks that have a manner proteins that you create, which help towards being a little bit more gourmand, but at the same time, more importantly, they give this natural protection. But that's basically a tannin extract. That's basically an, a past tannin. It's a type of tannin. Uh, even though it's not a, it, the same um, long chain acids are, are, in, are in the manner proteins as such. And for me, I feel very safe with every type of wine in, a, in an environment where I don't want to say over extracted. It's not that. I work with very, I mean, I'm in the south of France, so I work with very, very uh, ripe fruit, but there's a certain amount of ripe fruit. I don't sulfur anything because I know there's a natural byproduct at the beginning of the tannin from the phenols when they're really ripe. If it's not ripe, I'm going to add tannin at the ferment. Mm-hmm. Because there is a synergy, tannin and fruit and sugar and ferment, that does protect the wine naturally. And it's, uh, I'm not a scientist, unfortunately, about this, um, but um, I know for a fact in the future, I'm, I'm actually moving up uh, this year to some considerably higher altitude uh, wine production. So I'm looking at 450, 500 meter uh, vineyards. And I know for a fact I'm going to get some lesser ripe fruit, but I'm going to get another style of, of, of fruit that I'm looking for. But I know I'm going to need to add tannin to it because I'm not going to get the ripeness that I want when I need to pick that fruit. It's not going to ripen. It's going to be October when it gets picked, but I'm not going to get that phenol ripeness in the, in the juice. And it will be tannin. But Great point. Let, me, uh, let me speak a little bit to that, Joe, because... We've talked a lot about the artisanal winemaking, uh, the mm-hmm. ones that are, you know, fruit expression, and that is the origin of the industry. 90% of that which is consumed, particularly in the United States, uh, is commercial winemaking, which is somewhat less than artisanal. We would not know how to spell terroir, much less know <laughs> what it is. However, it does appear good on the back label. Now, I'm not knocking the trade that's kept me eating and sleeping indoors for all these decades, but there are many most wines that are formulated. We have X number of tonnage, X number of gallons from this vineyard, from this vineyard, from this region, from this region, and they can be small scale and very, very large scale. Uh, The use for these tannins in that production is just as valuable. Obviously, cost per hectoliter is going to be their primary concern when, in fact, as they grow to find the usage, the proper usage of tannins. EBX has, I'll be crassly commercial here, EBX has five liquid tannins, four French, one American. And there are a number of brands out there, all good products with six, 12, 16 tannins. These five tannins are what Stefan likes to call the primary colors. We can package them. Uh, We could make blends of 70, 30, 50, 50, 80, 20, put them in another bottle, put them in another bag and have more stock keeping units. Or we can allow the winemaker to learn the proper usage of these tools. Because they're liquid, 
they blend very, very nicely. There's too much spice in this particular tannin on this varietal. So, mm. but I don't want to cut back on the dosage. So what do I do? Well, perhaps some untoasted liquid with the spice, a blend, 30% blend of that might get you that point that you want. These tools take a little bit of work uh, mm. to, to learn how to use them. But once you have accomplished that, uh, I have in the short period of time that these have been introduced to the California market, I have winemakers that say they'll smell the wine and go 13, EVX 13. That's the one I want. Or maybe I'll go for the 22. Maybe I'll do a, you know, they're already using these tools as, as the, to achieve that point of enhancement of the existing fruit, but year after year after year. And that's, that's a key piece there. We like to buy that particular brand of Chardonnay, that particular brand of Cabernet that gives us the same sensory effect every time we buy it. We as winemakers will bottle it every month or every quarter, the same blend, because on the shelf, it has to taste exactly the same. And if it does not, there's a chance of losing that market share. These are very critical yep. decisions. So maybe we're adding less tannin for the shorter shelf life. Maybe we're adding, you know, the, all these things. This is the juggling effect that winemaking does. This is what most commercial winemaking is. I think for the sake of information, for the sake of education, I will briefly mention my cooperage. We, uh, not by name, of course, you'll have to go to my website and uh, there will be a podcast from them. It's going to be a little, uh, it'll be very interesting and there may be some moments of discomfort, but I already have the theme. <laughs> but the thing that the Cooperage Eno Tools is working with, one of the three brands we're working with, all from the same distributorship in California, the one word I heard over and over and over and over about those barrels was consistent. So for several years now, uh, I've been thinking about the importance of that because I remember back discussion I had once with a winemaker where he was up in arms because he had a couple of barrels from the same Cooper and side by side, same wine, allegedly, same Cooperage, same nomenclature on the barrels and in a tasting, we tried them in the cellar and I'll be darned, they were different. Neither was bad. They were both good, but by gosh and by golly, right there side by side, they were starkly different. So I asked about 50 questions, tiptoeing around the big question, which was who in this building is responsible for topping? Because one <laughs> thing I'm good at, one thing I'm really good at is guessing percentages of Merlot in a blend. I mean, I can come scary close. If I, if I know where I am, if I know what Merlot's thumbprint looks like in the region I'm standing in, yeah. I can find it. My sneaking suspicion was that someone had topped the Cab Franc with some Merlot in that barrel, the one that stood out. And the winemaker was wholly convinced that that was absolutely not the case. And that was a, a, you know, a, a, a crazy lack of consistency from that brand of barrels, which I'm no longer affiliated with. But, you know, when you're in sales, the customer is always right. So I just, I did my best to mitigate the damage. And I know from talking with Stefan that uh, this line of tannin has some very interesting history, which I think the customer needs to understand. Mr. Redu was, was wondering about in the process where you're dealing with a product from Mother Nature, 
there is inherent inconsistency in nature, right? So, so people who are in the oak business do everything they can to eliminate the variables, just like winemakers, you know, mother nature is going to throw you a different vintage every year. Something's always different, but if you have a certain style, if you have a wine club, which expects your wine to be a certain way, of course you, you roll with it. So in Stefan's situation, I'm wondering if he's going to pick up on my hint about um, I'm asking him to tell the story about um, the the epiphany about the oven, about how to consistently produce a certain type of wood toasted to a certain degree to be the raw product for use in extracting tannin. In fact, the story is uh, when I was uh long time back when I was uh, making all the machinery to create, to toast the staves and chips, etc. Uh, once I was in a bakery uh, in France and, uh, and I, I saw those croissants uh, and I said to myself, how come all those croissants are all the same? All crunchy outside, all tender inside. And I looked at, um, at uh, the oven the, the baker was using, and I, I looked, there were a lot of croissants in this oven. And the one on the upper corner was exactly the same as the one in the center. So I said to myself, ooh, there's a technology here. Because baking a croissant, for those who like croissants, they might know, uh, <laughs> baking croissant is something extremely complicated. So in fact, I, I had a chance to, um, uh, to meet some engineer in the bakering industry and we use their technology, modified it. So I use what I have learned in the cooperage. And so we create uh, our ovens. Because yes, uh, making wine is a world of viable, variables. You have so many things going, coming up. So this is why at every step from the sourcing, from the seasoning of the oak and the toasting, we try to, to reduce the amount of variable we're gonna give to, to, to the winemaker. Variables. Mm, yes, Very sorry, good. my French accent is... You know, I'm sitting here thinking about the wood, the sources, the, the gathering of the raw materials, which I understand um, your family has been involved in for some time. And suffice to say that that your your family is is probably supplying some of the coopers we've all heard of with with their wood or at least involved in that process. Is that true? Amide, my, my company, this is the first activity we have, is sourcing oak, maturating oak, in order to make barrels. Right. So this is why um, our first clients were coopers. So that's, that, that was easy for me because since my youngest age, I know them all. Uh, and I was able to, uh, to connect with them. Uh, and this is also why I had the chance to help some of them to develop their brand in terms of chips and stave. Yes, sourcing the oak, seasoning the oak is 
is for me the most important step and where everything else flows. And this is also why we decided to go to the tanning industry because we, we are extremely concerned on sustainability. Just for the record, we, when I was young, I used to go to, to the forest with my father. Today, I'm going not to the same forest I was, I, I was going when I was young. I'm going 250, 200, feet, 200 kilometers up north because climate change, because we see forest, yes, we see forest uh, having droughts, having heat waves. And so we see the trees harmed by the, uh, the climate change. And the traditional type of forests are hammered by it. I'm looking to, to source the most, I see tree as a plant and I want the, the plant to be healthy. So I'm, and the terroir moved up, up. So I'm sourcing there. And when you understand that you, you, this migration to the north would have a, have a limit one day. So we have an issue here. So this is why I am extremely concerned on how to use this beautiful thing that is the oak. So when oak is cut, when we have those stave to make barrels, how do we use what is normally would call be waste? We don't see it as waste. We can make things stave out of it. We can make chips out of it from the, 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 the sew, sewing a piece of wood you have dust. This we can use it for tannins. We should be able to use everything we can. We, we want to use all the tree, all the good part of the tree because it's important. So sustainability is a very strong issue. And also, so this is why we move from the merin, so the, the, the bowel stave, to chips and staves and tank staves to tannins. This is why we, we move and, and extend the, the product range of what we do for sustainability. Thank you guys. I think we've covered a lot of ground as we go forward in more seasons, more episodes. I should think of this in the context of a community college, not so, uh, not so much like a university because we need to keep it, you know, what, how's this useful to me? You know, and I think that you guys put some stuff down that's amazing for guys in the cellar or people in the cellar. So this concludes season one, episode one of Eno Tools University. Racked but not filtered. I hope you enjoyed that information about tannin, some of the background, uh, a little bit of the behind the scenes of how oak tannin products are made. And uh, thanks again to our experts, Stefan, Doug, and James. Thanks for listening.